Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. looking at verses 4 to 7 this morning, but I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 7 for the sake of context, and then we will look at these verses concerning the grace of God, and it's two, probably some of the greatest words in the Bible, Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul speaking to the Ephesians and every believer since. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and we often thank you for your uh, entire word and, and all of it is profitable and all of it is uh, valuable all of it is a treasure yet in these seven verses and in, in these uh, four verses which we will look at this morning we, we see such a great contrast such a great divide from the depths of man's sinfulness and this was all of us those that are in you and those that are still outside of you this is mankind in his depravity in his sinfulness and yet we see your grace your grace that came to rescue sinners such as us Lord, as we look at these verses, at this passage, as we look into the depths of your grace and the heights of your love, help us to see, help us to understand, help us to grasp. Help me, Lord, as I preach these words that who is adequate, as Paul said, who is worthy to preach such a gospel, such a salvation? Yet this gospel and this salvation must be preached. And you have appointed me to preach it this morning. And so, Lord, I pray for assistance. Pray for guidance. I pray for your spirit to work through me for the benefit of your people. 
that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with uh, before and after pictures. You see them on all sorts of ads and uh, magazines, um, TV, internet. Um, probably see them most often in the context of diet and exercise. Uh, supplements and exercise programs. You see the before and after of a person who was out of shape and overweight and then you see the what happens after they get on a program or take a supplement. And we, we see that. Uh, we see the power of before and after pictures. And, um, but we also see it not just in diet and exercise, but in uh, the remodeling or restoration of homes. And, and uh, you know, a- anybody who is uh, involved in the construction business and you see those ads and uh, same thing, uh, the before and after of a brand new bathroom or uh, the outside of your home, or you might even see it in, um, in those uh, reality TV shows of uh, the restoration of a home or a car that was in a junkyard and just this drastic contrast of the before condition and then the after. And we see the power of that. Um, Power to not only uh, sell whatever it is they're selling, but just to see the transformation. And uh, I remember uh, seeing this um, once when I was... uh, so it wasn't too long ago. I had braces as an adult. <laughs> and so I went to an orthodontist that was very business savvy. And they had some before and after pictures. But they, they didn't just put up the normal before and after pictures of a teenager or a young adult um, getting their teeth fixed. No, they, they put up the worst before pictures of teeth that were just horrendous. And just sideways almost even, um, compacted, um, something that is almost, you, you might even see, uh, you know, in those uh, gag uh, fake, you know, teeth or, or whatever, <laughs> and, and then they would show the after. And it wasn't completely perfect teeth, but it was much better. And, and I remember sitting there and seeing, and just seeing this picture of redemption, that someone, certainly these people, whether a teenager, young adult, or uh, 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 a mature adult, certainly was probably ashamed to smile before and open their mouth and show just the nature of their teeth that was, you know, wasn't their fault. They, they didn't, you know, for the most part, didn't mess up their teeth. Uh, I, I'm sure there, there might have been uh, some that uh, didn't eat so well and had, uh, you know, some, some bad teeth. But for the most part, that's how they were born. And yet this orthodontist was able to, over some time, may have been a couple years or whatever, was able to straighten their teeth and fix their teeth to a certain degree. And I just remember looking at those pictures and, and almost tearing up because of thinking of redemption. And, and it's, it's not no illustration 
is perfect, uh, no illustration, especially when we get to salvation. But uh, there is a sense that as we come to this passage that Paul is showing this before and after picture. And, and there is another uh, picture which the word of God shows of before and after, primarily of uh, the Israelites in their sinfulness. And then what God, by his power, by the power of his spirit, does. And uh, we see this before and after picture in Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, I, I, would, uh, I would commend that to you later on, maybe uh, later on this afternoon, to go there and read. And, and uh, Ezekiel's given this vision of not just skeletons, not just dead people, but dry bones that have been there. There's, there's nothing. They're all dried out. They're not even connected anymore. And God calls to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And he says, oh, Lord, you know. You know. And he sees this vision of those bones by the Spirit of God coming back together and muscle and sinew and flesh being put and them being raised up to new life and becoming new. This is, in a sense, what Paul is, is getting at here concerning uh, New Testament believers, concerning uh, the Ephesians, Gentiles, for the most part, concerning us, concerning anyone who is in Christ. What had happened? He's painting this before and after picture. Uh, of the depth of our depravity and our sinfulness in verses 1 to 3, dead in our transgressions and sins. As I said last week, what can a dead man do? As many preachers said, nothing except possibly stink and decay. But then we get to verse 4. And probably the two most important words in this whole passage, and I would dare say the whole letter, but God. But God. I like what one commentator writes. He says, No hopeless fate looks any grimmer than that which awaits the forlorn company of mankind marching behind the prince of the power of the air to their destruction under divine wrath. Just when things look the most desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech. But God. But God. And it may be painfully obvious, but notice how it says, but God. And not, but I. But I did this. I grew up in church, or I walked the aisle, or I got my ticket punched, or... I did all these works, or I gave all this money, but I was baptized. Or, or anything else in, in terms of human merit. And as I said last week, and I've said many times before, there's only two religions in the world. That of human achievement or human merit, and that of divine grace. And we get this stark contrast of the two here says, but God, does not say, but I, the religion of human merit and self-improvement, but I did X, Y, and Z. 
as Paul would say, and, and quoting from, uh, in a sense, Jeremiah, no one will boast in the sight of the Lord. It's all God's work. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. But it's interesting, as you know, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones have said, has said, um, and uh, uh, Steve Lawson famously quotes him often, thank God for the butts in the Bible. And this is the biggest but in the Bible. But it's not just this one, but it's all throughout Scripture. It's not just to New Testament believers as they are given the gospel and they're told to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But it's also given to Israelites. And I'd like you to turn with me to a few passages, starting first in Deuteronomy 7. And see this. And I just, I'm just going to highlight a few of them. But it's all through scripture. And it might not be exactly uh, connected as but God. Or, or, but it, you see the contrast. Deuteronomy 7. As uh, Moses is portraying to uh, the Israelites. In the second giving of the law uh, of um, their establishment as uh, God's people, as a nation. And he says in Deuteronomy 7, 7, Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. It's basically what he's saying there is, is, is you were nothing. You were nothing as a nation. You couldn't boast. You're, you're a, a, a nation of slaves. You were the fewest of all peoples. And, and he didn't love you because you were lovely. The same reason why he doesn't love us. He, he, he loves us uh, uh, because he is love. He loves us because he loves us. And he loved Israel because he loved Israel and he decided to love them. There wasn't anything inherent or special about them but God. Like you see another passage in Acts chapter 2 as Peter is proclaiming to the Israelites concerning Jesus in this this great sermon of Peter's uh, on Pentecost, and he's, he's calling the Jews to repent and to believe upon Jesus, and, and specifically um, explaining what they did to him. Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. In the sense that, that uh, not only is Peter calling out the Israelites and the, the Jewish leaders for their self-righteousness and their, their uh, false 
understanding of the word of God and, and of God's ways. But he's condemning them for murdering their own Messiah. He says, but in spite of that, God raised him up again so that sinners could be saved. It was all by his hand. And then he calls them to repent and believe. I think another one, which is specific for us, is in Romans chapter 5. As Paul is uh, expounding upon uh, uh, the gospel and justification by faith and faith in Christ and Christ alone and, and what he did, not, not what we did, or, or not even in our own faith. Romans 5 and verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Over and over again, the word of God shows uh, the sinfulness of mankind. And yet this contrast of God's mercy and love and grace and forgiveness of his great love towards sinners, of salvation, which from beginning to end is of his work in and through Christ by the power of the Spirit. And Paul is painting this picture for the Ephesians as he writes this letter to them to explain to them the nature of the church, the establishment of the church, how the church is to function, what the church is, and for quite a few weeks, we went through this anthem of praise that he gives to uh, every member of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in chapter 1 as he portrays uh, each member of the Trinity's work in salvation. And then he gets to chapter 2 and he paints this picture of what we were, of what sinners are apart from God, dead in our transgressions and sin. And then he explains how God has, in a sense, the, the specific details of saving us and why he saved us and what he saved us for. And he paints this great contrast for the Ephesians and for every believer's sins so that we would praise God. We would thank God that we would walk in a manner worthy of this calling, this great calling to which we have been called as the church. And as the Apostle Paul expounds upon the great contrast of God's work of regeneration here in light of the total depravity and spiritual deadness of our former state, he will show us here in these four verses, Verses 4 to 7. These four verses, he's going to show us and show the Ephesians uh, four aspects of God's work of salvation in and through Jesus Christ for his glory alone. As he almost, it's almost as if it's, it's stages of salvation. And there's many letters that are, or passages of Paul that somewhat mirror this. But in these four verses, he's going to show us four aspects of God's work of salvation in and through Christ. Beginning first with the foundation of our salvation or uh, the, the basis for our salvation in verse 4. As he 
gives these two words, this great contrast, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It's the foundation of our salvation, beginning in God's character, in his attributes of mercy and love. God's mercy and love. That this salvation is, in a sense, dispensed from his riches of mercy according to his character and attributes. And many times in the Old Testament we read, uh, even in that great passage in Ezekiel or uh, Exodus 34, uh, God's uh, self, his definition of himself as he speaks to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But, but that self-definition, it would be repeated throughout the Old Testament in, in uh, many psalms and, and many other places. One such place, Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, Psalm 86, 15. Another psalm, Psalm 145, the great, um, somewhat of an anthem of praise as we get towards the end of the Psalter and those psalms of uh, explicit, uh, direct praise to God. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and, all, and His mercies are over all His works. God is righteous. He's perfectly holy. But He's also merciful. He's forbearing. He's patient. He not, does not desire that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith. And the foundation of our salvation is in his riches of mercy. According to his divine prerogative and decree. He is merciful, but he also is sovereign over who he uh, desires to display his mercy in and through. Is Paul, uh, in a sense, is explaining this uh, to the Romans in Romans chapter 9, and he, he quotes Mo- Moses, or, or rather uh, what God said to Moses in, in nine, uh, Romans 9.15. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. That we are debtors to God's mercy, in a sense. We, we are, are dependent totally upon God's mercy that to come to Christ for salvation, to have eternal life, the sinner must throw himself upon the mercy of God and, and plead for mercy. That God would, even as the, uh, that scene which Jesus paints in the Gospels of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee and the tax collector beats his breast and says, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He knows that he needs mercy. If, if anything is to uh, happen concerning his spiritual state, concerning forgiveness, concerning being reconciled with a holy and righteous God, he needs mercy. One of the great foundation stones of our salvation is God's mercy. And second, like his, often 
paired together as I was reading those verses concerning uh, God's mercy. It's often paired together, mercy, grace, loving kindness, compassion, uh, interconnected and overlapping with one another, and His love. His love, just like His mercy, initiated by, dispensed from, and dependent upon Him alone. As John says in, in his epistle, his first epistle, First uh, uh, John in 4.10, he says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins or the satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. And then later on in verse 19 of chapter 4 of 1 John, he says, we love because he first loved us. There's no way that we could love without him first loving us. We wouldn't even know or understand love unless he first loved us. We would be like many people in this world who define love according to what they get out of it. They love a person because of who they are and not because they have decided to love that person, which is, in a sense, the biblical definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that it issues from the person to the object of love. It's not in response to the object of love, but it's the from the one who is loving. And this is God's love. This is biblical love. That it begins with God. We would not love unless God first loved us. And, and we would not definitely not love Him or seek Him unless He first loved us and displayed His love in us and through us and upon us through the sacrifice of his son so we read in john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life the greatest act of love so i read in romans 5 8 and you see in your bulletin that but god demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You need to understand the foundation of our salvation. It, it, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with us so much. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We've been saved because of who God is, because of his character. Because of his attributes. The first aspect of God's work of salvation uh, uh, that Paul unfolds for us here is the foundation of our salvation, which is built upon God's eternal, unchanging, and imperishable mercy and love. And he must start there. He must start there. But God. Nothing to do with us so much. We were dead which is the second aspect that he gets into. The second aspect which he shows of us of God's work of salvation, which Paul unfolds for us, is the implementation of our salvation, how we were actually saved. And it is a brief verse, but he shows us that it is his love being worked out, displayed upon us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And in a sense, another contrast here, showing our spiritual deadness, 
in our transgressions. Our transgressions, in a sense, didn't cause our deadness, but were a result or an evidence of our spiritual deadness. That we bore this rotten fruit of sinfulness in transgressing against God's law, in sinning against Him. We prove that we were spiritually dead, unable to reach out to Him, unable to come to Him, unable to commend ourselves to God in any way. And so God had to make us alive. He had to regenerate us. He had to resurrect us. He had to make us new. And so as God causes believers to be born again, we get this concept or this doctrine of regeneration, which Paul shows us here that, that God made us, if you're in Christ, it's his work. He made you alive. He regenerated you. I'd like you to turn with me real quick to the gospel of John and then the beginning of the gospel of John. John unfolds this. And probably uh, we see it more clearly than, than many of the other gospel writers. We see it in John chapter 1 and 3 and, and 5 and 6, 10, 15. But he shows us this here in John chapter 1 in verse 11. He came to what was his own, the Jews, and those who were his own, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, and once again, another, but of God. But God caused us to be born again. Not because of our heritage, not because of our works, not because of what we could do, would do, should do, but because of what he did. He caused us to be born again. And you just turn over a few pages to John chapter 3. And once again, it is what Jesus is trying to get to Nicodemus. As Nicodemus comes to him at, at night and he, he's... He's asking him, in a sense, who he is, and, and Jesus, in a sense, cuts to the chase and, and gets to the, the real matter at hand. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus, he enters into this exchange, this dialogue, this somewhat of a, a debate. Is he, he's not fully grasping it. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. This power, the Holy Spirit, causing new life, taking out that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, or even as 
Jesus is alluding to uh, that passage in Ezekiel that he is sprinkling clean water upon them and cleansing them. Putting his law within them so that they would love him and seek him. This is how uh, salvation was actually worked out, implemented. It, it started in, in, in the, the, the foundation stones of God's mercy and his love, his character, his attributes. And that love was worked out through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would be born again, regenerated by his power. And then this parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. And so often, uh, you know, in Christianity, in our Christian culture, we hear this term over and over again, and it, it is good, grace, grace. And even some have, uh, we don't see it a lot, but um, many women have been named grace. It's a good name. It's a good term. But as many terms, as many concepts, uh, familiarity can breed contempt or just apathy, that we don't fully understand grace. We don't fully grasp grace. It's by grace. It means unmerited favor. As Paul would then expound upon this grace again in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. It's a, it's a gift. That's what grace is. It's a gift. It's, it's a gift that cannot be earned it cannot be repaid back that's what he's getting at he ties grace in with regeneration with the new birth something that we cannot do on our own that's what grace is we cannot make ourselves be born what what did you contribute to your natural birth nothing and just like a baby doesn't really know how it's born and even some kids they, they don't know until they're later until many years later how that process of birth the same is true spiritually speaking that when we come into the kingdom when we are born again we don't fully grasp how that happened it it takes time to read the word of god and for the spirit of god to grow us and so that we can look back and praise god that but God, I, I was going one way and, and God interrupted me. He arrested me. He turned me back. This is what Paul is explaining to Titus. Is he's giving Titus instructions concerning the church on Crete and the establishment of elders and leaders for the church to uh, how the church is to operate. And towards the end of Titus, he, he gives these the, these instructions concerning how believers are to behave and, and, and that they are to be gracious and merciful. And he ties that in with the fact that God has displayed his grace and his mercy upon us. Titus 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified 
by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And right in that passage, it's almost similar or exactly the same. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Titus 3 in verses 4 to 7, Ephesians 2 in verses 4 to 7, very similar in terms of the concepts, the principles of kindness and affection, mercy and love, the, the regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit, justification by His grace, this concept of justification which Paul would expound upon in Romans 4 and, and 5 that, that we are uh, declared righteous in the sight of God through Christ, not because of our righteousness, but because of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that has been imputed to us, a righteousness of Christ, of that perfect life that he lived on behalf of believers so that he could obey the law and God could, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin on Him, His righteousness on us, so we would be justified in the sight of a holy, perfect, righteous God who will bring every act into judgment. But that judgment won't fall on believers because it fell on Christ. And there is no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we see in Romans 8.1. This is grace. This is grace, this is mercy, this is love that caused us to be born again. This is how we were saved. This is the implementation of our salvation. Third, Paul shows us the consummation of our salvation. Somewhat getting to somewhat of a second stage. And all these stages, these aspects are overlapping, interconnected. But he goes on, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And once again, we, we, we see uh, this concept of the already and not yet. How many of us are, are with Christ physically? Uh, none, but we are spiritually. If we're in Christ, we are with him because we are united with him. One commentator, he writes this, The tense of raised and seated indicates that these are immediate and direct results of salvation. Not only is the believer dead to sin and alive to righteousness through Christ's resurrection, but he also enjoys his Lord's exaltation and shares in his preeminent glory. But there's a sense that we don't really experience that so much. We do, uh, in a lesser extent, as we are walking in obedience and in step with the Holy Spirit. But Paul would show this, this concept of union with Christ in Romans 6 and in other places, Colossians 2 and 3. That as I said, as, as this great exchange happened at the cross, and Christ's life or his righteousness, his holiness was in a sense, imputed to us, not because of anything that we did or could do or would do, but in the sense that we are given his 
perfect life and, and being conformed into his image, we are made one with him and we will all be one with him at the end, those who are in Christ as he is one. This aspect of the Trinity, this oneness. And we have first been united with Christ in his resurrection. We died with him, in a sense. And it's something that the human mind is incapable of fully grasping. We, we in this modern age, those of us who are in Christ uh, 2,000 years after the fact, that in the past when Christ died, we, in a sense, died with him, spiritually speaking. Our, our, our sins, we are dead to sin, in a sense, as Paul would say in Romans 6. Dead to sin, but alive in Christ. This is why we, we celebrate that, uh, that, um, that ordinance or that ceremony of baptism in the way we do it. That we go down a picture of our death, going down into the grave as Christ died as well. We died with him, and, and then as he was raised up out of the grave to new life, we are raised as well. It's a symbol of what happened to us, spiritually speaking. That he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place. We are united with Christ in resurrection, but we're also united with him in his exaltation or the completion of this work that he sat down at the right hand of the Father after completing this work of salvation, that that sacrifice was accepted. Paul shows this in Colossians 2. See, shows to the Colossians and writes them concerning the, the greatness of Christ and, and tries to refute all these errors which uh, Colossian believers are hearing concerning Christ, these Gnostic errors. And he explains to them a fuller sense of what happened at the cross. Colossians 2.10, In him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, meaning set apart, made holy, circumcised with Christ, separated in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And once again, a, a similar uh, uh, parallel passage, Colossians 2.13, And you being dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgression. This is, in a sense, the outworking of our salvation, the consummation, or, or uh, as we uh, realize it spiritually, but then we will realize it uh, physically as we will be given new bodies and we will be physically, in a sense, raised up with a glorified body, and then when he returns, we will rule and reign with him, so to speak. Paul's trying to paint in just one verse this loftiness of this consummation of our salvation, that we were united with Christ in his resurrection, united with him as the Father exalts him after completing the work that he sent him to do. And there's a primary application to this. We read a little bit about it here, but Paul expounds on it a bit more in Colossians 3. It says, therefore, 
If you have been raised up with Christ, if you are in Christ, you've been raised up with Him. He has saved you. He has uh, caused you to be born again. Then keep seeking the things above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. This is you know, how we are sanctified. This is a Christian life. Uh, this is uh, what we are called to do, to look to things above, to look to Christ, to always look to Him, to follow Him, to seek Him, to know Him, to be conformed into His image, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of Him after His example. Or as the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, to... Uh, uh, lay aside all the sin and the encumbrances and to uh, run the races set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what Paul wants the Ephesians to do. He wants them to fix their eyes on Jesus as we see this phrase over and over again throughout this letter, in him, in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ. It's all about Christ. Christianity is all about Christ. Which gets us to the fourth aspect of our salvation. Paul has shown us the foundation of our salvation, the implementation of our salvation, the consummation of our salvation, and then fourth, this fourth aspect, this fourth stage, so to speak, or concept or principle, the intention or purpose of our salvation. Verse 7, so that this great purpose clause, uh, we, there's certain uh, uh, phrases that we see as we go through our Bible reading. Uh, we see this transitional statement in verse 4, but God. But then in verse 7 we say, see, so that, this purpose clause or purpose statement, because of, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a purpose. This is the intention of our salvation as everything else is. Well, the reason why everything is created, why everything exists, why everything is working according to uh, the way it is working is, is so that God would receive all the glory to the praise of His glorious grace. And that's the reason why we are saved. And too often we think of our salvation in terms of us. My salvation. Our salvation isn't primarily about us. We are benefactors. We are recipients. But our salvation is about God. It's about His grace, His mercy, His love. And in the end, it will be to His praise, to the praise of His glorious grace. Whereas uh, that great theologian, Jonathan Edwards, wrote his great treatise the end for which god created the world that great book and you know i commend that book to you it's free <laughs> electronically um, <laughs> but you can read the end for which god created the world and i'll give you the cliff notes to the praise of his glorious grace it's for his glory the reason why he does everything i, I remember when my my uh kids were young and I, I haven't um, done this as much as I should have and some more than others but when they're toddlers and we go around and we'd see things and what's that that's a cloud what, what's that that's a leaf oh, okay well who made that leaf who made that cloud God made it and then the next question why did he make it 
I don't know. And I teach them, and then after a while, for his glory, for his glory, for his glory. That's why he made it. That's why you're saved. That's why things work out the way they are, for his glory. Paul, time and time again, in, in almost every one of his letters, and not just him, but many of the, the writers of the Bible, and if they don't explicitly say it, they allude to it, that it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. He says this to Corinthians, that, that, that messed up church. And my favorite thing about his letter to the Corinthians, he says this in, in, in the beginning, to the saints, to the saints at Corinth. And yes, the, the, the apostate Roman Catholic Church has diminished and distorted that term. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. And, and, and you can, in your evangelism to Roman Catholics, you can go up and say, Hi, I'm St. Joe. <laughs> Pick a fight right there. <laughs> But he says to the Corinthians at the end of chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Time and time again, it's the Lord's work from beginning to end. He is the one who chose us, who called us, who convicted us, who changed our hearts so that we would even reach out to him. So he removed the veil from our eyes so that we would see ourselves as we really are, as sinful as we really are, as condemned as we really are outside of Christ, and that we would reach out to him, that we would repent, that we would believe upon him. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end in every stage, in every aspect, and it's all to the praise of His glorious grace, that we would see His grace in the, the, the dark backdrop of our spiritual deadness and our sinfulness. And we see His love and His mercy shine bright in our lives as we testify to His glorious grace. That's the intention, that's the reason why we are saved. But second, not just to the praise of his glorious grace, but to the praise of his loving kindness or his loving kindnesses. He says, to show that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Almost the same thing he says to Romans in chapter 2 as he's... criticizing or confronting, in a sense, this, uh, what, it, there's this dialogue all throughout the, the letter to the Romans as if he's speaking to a, a, a Jew and a Gentile. And, and sometimes he goes to the Gentile, sometimes he goes to the Jew, and he answers these ob- uh, objections or, or he confronts them. And he says in Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly 
of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's because he's kind, his loving kindness, his forbearance. And once again, all these phrases, mercy, love, kindness, compassion, grace, they're interconnected inter, uh, and overlapping and interweaving. As he displays all of his character attributes in salvation, that his forbearance, his kindness, his patience leads us to repentance. So he saves us for his glory, that we would praise his glorious grace and that we would praise his loving kindnesses. You've got to see this contrast. You know, oftentimes we're so prone to try to insert ourselves into either salvation or sanctification or works. And it's true as we, in sanctification, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But Paul goes on and says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So that even our sanctification, even our holiness, even our service, even the good things we do will... Uh, in a sense, be to the praise of his glorious grace as we read in Revelation that the, the saints will uh, and the elders cast their crowns before the Lord. Saying, in a sense, it, it's only because of your work in us, and so we give it back to you. There's no one will boast in the sight of the Lord. You have to understand this contrast. And for some of us, it's easier than for others. Some of us, we, we came to faith later in life, and, and we have a, a stark contrast between our, uh, what, what they say, the B.C. days and the, <laughs> the after you know, Christ came. And we can clearly look at our life and clearly say, but God. But for others of you, it's a little bit harder. Maybe you, you grew up in church, or, or maybe you've always been an upright um, Citizen, You've always done what is right. And so there's always a sense of morality. And, and God really had to work on you. Or, or some of you, you, you can't really pinpoint the day or e even the season. Or, or, or maybe, you know, some of you, you because you're taught wrong and because you may have been, even been manipulated to, you know, raise your hand and walk an aisle. And you may have... You look back as, you know, one of my former pastors said, he's like, I've been saved six times, but only one time for real. You're only saved one time for real. And it's that time, in, but God, in which you were born again. But every testimony should have this statement, should have this concept, but God. Paul paints this picture as well to the Corinthians as he is explaining to them in 1 Corinthians 6. And he gives a full gospel. And this is how we should view our, our world and our culture and the people in our world because, as he says to them, such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And too often we can overemphasize one attribute or character trait of God at the expense of another. As we've seen in our culture, in our Christian culture, that God's wrath and His holiness and His justice is downplayed and diminished. People like to talk about His love and grace all day long. 
but his love is, is not as lovely and his grace is not as gracious until you understand his justice and his wrath and his holiness. And this is where Paul starts, always. He starts with the bad news first and then the good news. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that means, that means anything, any sort of sexual immorality outside of marriage between a, a man and a woman, and you shouldn't even have to, I shouldn't even have to say that, but marriage is only between a man and a woman, and it's any immorality outside of that in thought, word, or deed, which most of us are guilty of that, nor idolaters, anyone who worships anything but God, either a statue or uh, something that you consider more worthy and more valuable than God, a car, a job, a, a relationship, nor adulterers. Once again, anyone who, uh, uh, you know, outside of marriage, sexual immorality, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I dare say there's not a person in here or in society or in all of mankind that doesn't fall under one of these categories. But he says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. Which right away, that phrase destroys this concept of the gay Christian. It's just like saying the murdering Christian or the adultering Christian or the lying Christian or the swindling Christian. You know, I'm a Christian. I'm just a, you know, swindling Christian. I'm just a reviling Christian. I'm just a thieving Christian. No. He says, such were some of you. That doesn't mean that you'll never struggle with those temptations again, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. But God. And if that's not in your testimony, if that's not in your life, this sense of but God, then I would examine you. Yourselves. As Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Test yourselves by the word of God. Look at your lives. Examine yourself. Ask, have I lived up to God, God's standard? Which the answer would be no. But then have I recognized that and have I called out to God for uh, mercy and forgiveness and renewal and a new life and, and that he would have mercy upon me have I ever been to a point in my life where I have cried out like the tax collector oh Lord be merciful to me the sinner if that's not you then I would call you to call out to him and ask him for mercy for grace repent believe upon him call upon the Lord while he is near seek him while he may be found he is gracious, he is merciful, and he loves to save sinners. But he will punish every sin. And that sin was either will be punished or is either punished at the cross of Christ or you will bear that punishment forever in hell. 
And so once again, we look at God's mercy and his grace. And as we come together to celebrate this mercy and this grace and this uh, celebration of his sacrifice in the Lord's Supper, we examine ourselves and we confess any known sin. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but I would call upon everyone here um, to take a moment to confess any known sin before you partake of the Lord's Supper. And once again, this celebration, you, you don't have to be a member here in this particular local church to celebrate with us, but you do have to be a member of the universal church, of Christ's body. And not only that, do not only do you have to be a true believer, but you need to be a believer who is striving for holiness, not perfection, but holiness, that you would not eat this bread or drink this cup in an unworthy manner, but that we do, would do it as a celebration of his grace, love, and mercy, because God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace we have been saved, and so we celebrate that grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ to, that you sent him to live a life that none of us could live and to go to the cross to die the death that we all deserve to die, and by his wounds we are healed. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your perfect life, for your obedience. We thank you that you are now seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us advocating on our behalf and that we can boldly approach this throne of grace to receive help in time of need. And we thank you, Spirit, for regenerating our dead hearts and causing us to be born again, to be made alive. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, that you, by your grace and mercy, would pour out your love upon them and that you would convert them and convict them of their sin and cause them to be born again. Lord, please save and for those of us who are saved, help us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, this great calling that we have been called to. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, the a little bit different this time, the men will pass the plates and we will, once um, all the elements have